Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. For the best experience, listen with headphones. We had a, a variety of strange incidents that happened over and over again and never made any sense at all. My, one of my favorites is the Phantom Meter Reader. This is where a man would knock at a door of a house in the suburbs and uh, say he'd come to read the meter, the electric meter, the gas meter. And he would be dressed in uh, the proper coveralls and all, and they would let him in, he'd go down into the basement, he wouldn't come out. And these people, after about an hour, they'd say, what the hell is he doing down in my basement? And they would look, and sometimes the man would be gone, altogether, never to be seen again. And even though there was no way out of his base, that basement, so the phantom meter readers was one type of MIB that we we've had. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode nine: The Monster in the Igloos. What is Battleship Gray, five to seven feet tall, has a pair of red eyes two inches in diameter which blaze like two lasers, wings which extend to ten feet when spread and loves to chase automobiles. Give up? If it's any consolation, nobody else seems to know what it is either. But over 100 people in Ohio and West Virginia swear that they have seen such a creature since November 1966. These are the opening words to an article in the October 1968 edition of Saga magazine titled Mothman Monster. The subtitle was, Is it a bizarre behemoth from the bowels of the earth? Or is it some winged nightmarish visitor from outer space? One thing is sure. It has terrorized hundreds of people in Ohio and West Virginia, and its nocturnal visits are becoming more frequent and frightening. The author was an eccentric paranormal researcher named John Keel. Although he never saw the Mothman, he is the pivotal character in this story, because through his reporting and his book The Mothman Prophecies, he turned the story of a few sightings into a compelling tale that captured the public imagination. Because of Keel's influence on how we have come to understand the Mothman story, it's helpful to be clear about the actual sightings around Point Pleasant, West Virginia, beginning in late 1966, and then the way Keel related those events to create the popular legend we now know. The Mothman sightings really began around midnight on November 15, 1966. Two young married couples, identified in the Saga article as Mr. and Mrs. Roger Scarberry and Mr. and Mrs. Steve Millette, were driving through a place known as the TNT area, about seven miles outside of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. This is John Keel from a Fort Fest convention in the 1990s. In November of 1966, four young people in a car, they were driving past this building, and they saw what looked like a very large man, six or seven feet tall, standing next to this power plant. 
And for some reason, they were all, he scared the death out of them. They were all scared to death. Roger Scarberry told Keel that, quote, it was shaped like a man, but bigger, maybe six and a half or seven feet tall, and it had big wings folded against its back. Scarberry's wife added that it was those eyes that got us. It had two big red eyes, like automobile taillight reflectors. So the boy who was driving hit the accelerator, and they drove out of there at a high speed. Looking back, this thing rose up in the air and followed their car. And they were going over 60 miles an hour on these dirt roads. And this thing was flying right along with them. So they drove straight to the police station. Roger told Keel, quote, It followed us right to the city limits. Funny thing, we noticed a dead dog by the side of the road there. But when we came back a few minutes later, the dog was gone. Now you have to realize in small towns, teenagers do not go to the police station voluntarily. And the police were so convinced by their behavior that that they held a press conference the next day. And reporters from the local newspapers, from Charlotte and other cities around there, came to hear this very bizarre story of this flying man. At that time, Batman was very popular on television. So the newspapers labeled this creature Mothman. And that was the beginning of the Mothman caper, I guess you'd call it. A deputy named Millard Halstead later remarked to Keel about the two young couples. I've known them all their lives. They've never been in any trouble. I took them seriously. They saw something. They were really scared. The TNT area, where the two couples had seen the creature, consisted of hundreds of acres of fields and forest that had been a site for storing explosives during World War II. The explosives were housed in what they called igloos, domed concrete bunkers covered with a thick layer of earth for camouflage. Here is John Keel again, this time from a meeting of Saucer News in the late 1960s, describing the TNT area. As I said, it's 2,500 acres. There are hundreds of these igloos there. There are four families living within this area, so it's very thinly populated. If Mothman wanted to live there, not very many people would uh, bother him. I also discovered that during the Second World War, when they were building this ammunition dump, they built a whole network of tunnels in which to transport the high explosives from the arsenal to the various igloos. No one in the whole region knew the location of these tunnels. There were no maps available. Uh, There were some entrances to some of these tunnels, but when I went into them, I found them full of water. But it's very possible that there is a network of tunnels down there that was not full of water. I wanted to explore them more fully, but the the few openings that I found, I couldn't get anywhere. Perhaps it's just as well as I didn't, because I, I hate to be crawling through a tunnel and meet something seven feet tall. It was, in many ways, the perfect spot for a mysterious creature, massive and creepy. It's also the perfect spot to spook yourself if you see something unexpected. It's been repurposed as a nature preserve. You can walk around and into these igloos, which are, of course, empty now. The next year, there were over 100 reports of this mothman. Some of the people who reported seeing this thing were not only adults, they were responsible adults, like bankers and local officials, 
Keel went to West Virginia to investigate. And it's here that the distinction between sightings of the creature and Keel's reporting on a broader paranormal context begins to complicate things. Keel gets involved and goes down there and talks to the witnesses and establishes a relationship with this woman, Mary Heyer, who is a newspaper editor, reporter, correspondent for the Athens, Ohio newspaper, which is the closest major newspaper to Point Pleasant, West Virginia. I am Aaron Gullius. I am a historian and teacher and writer, and I have a podcast called The Saucer Life. The way the story goes along is you've got these sightings in West Virginia of the Mothman overlaid with UFO sightings, and Keel, through correspondence and, and visits and phone calls, trying to keep up with the story and seeing how it develops. Mary Heyer worked for the Athens Messenger, where she was both a reporter and the author of a column called Where the Waters Mingle. It became a kind of running clearinghouse of Mothman and UFO reports, which were apparently happening with alarming frequency after the initial sighting by the Scarberries and Millettes. Here's an example of her column from January 22nd, 1967, two months after the initial Mothman sighting. It seems that West Virginia is seeing its share of strange objects. The latest was by Tad Jones of Dunbar, who said he came upon the unidentified flying object on Interstate 64. Its description is like that of many which have been reported in many areas of the United States and around the world. One woman in Point Pleasant reported several weeks ago about seeing something like that, but it was in the air several hundred feet. There are also, of course, the sightings of the monster and the unidentified objects seen recently by people in Cheshire, Gallipolis, Eureka, and Addison. In addition to her newspaper work, she kept up a correspondence with Keel, keeping him informed of paranormal reports during the times when he was not in West Virginia. The Mothman story began to incorporate strange elements that have now become part of our culture, but were not widely known at the time. The story of a young woman named Connie Carpenter is a good example of how this worked. John Keel kept a spiral notebook, the size that could fit into a shirt pocket, under the date November 27, 1966, were the following notes. Connie Joe Carpenter, 18, near New Haven. Later that night, two girls saw a UFO on Route 60 near St. Albans. Ran into neighbor's house. Neighbor confirmed sighting. Boyfriend, Keith Gordon. In his article for Saga magazine, Keel included Connie's story, among many other stories of encounters, with either the creature or UFOs. He wrote, Miss Connie Carpenter, a shy, studious girl of 18 from New Haven, West Virginia, allegedly had an identical encounter at 10.30 a.m. Sunday, November 27th. She was driving home from church, she told me when she saw what she thought at first was a large man in gray standing on the deserted links of the Mason County golf course outside of Mason, West Virginia. Those ten-foot wings suddenly unfolded. The thing took off straight up and headed for her car. The creature flew directly at her car before veering off and disappearing. Not surprisingly, Connie was upset by this encounter, 
She didn't return to school for several days and, according to Keel, required medical attention. She claimed to get a look at the Mothman's face, which she described as horrible, like something out of a science fiction movie. The next morning, her eyes were reddened and swollen shut and itched fiercely. This condition persisted for over two weeks. In fact, her eyes were still red and watery when I first interviewed her. I had seen this odd ailment several times before, but only on UFO witnesses who claimed to have gotten a close look at the luminous objects. Connie Carpenter was the only Mothman witness to come down with this eye burn. This was the extent of Connie's experience with the Mothman, but she continued to experience strange events. In February of 1967, Connie married the Keith Gordon mentioned in Keel's notebook. The newlyweds moved across the river to a house in Middleport, Ohio. On the morning of February 22nd, Connie left the house to walk to school. As she walked, a large black Buick pulled up beside her. The story was written up in an article in Keel's so-called Mothman Casebook. The occupant of the car opened the door and called to her. Thinking that he was seeking directions, she approached him. He was a clean-cut young man of about 25, she told me later. He was wearing a colorful mod shirt, no jacket, and had neatly combed thick black hair and appeared to be suntanned. He spoke with no noticeable accent. When she reached the car, the driver suddenly lunged and grabbed her arm and ordered her to get in with him. He did not get out of the car. She fought back, and there was a brief struggle before she finally broke away. The implication in this story is that this incident was connected to her Mothman sighting. He's not a kidnapper trolling the streets before school begins. He's there because of Connie's experience. While he isn't in the garb that we would come to expect, he seems to be performing the same function as what would come to be known as the Men in Black. While Keel was not the first to write about the Men in Black, they play a prominent role in both the book, The Mothman Prophecies, and his narrative of the events around Point Pleasant. Connie herself would experience the more stereotypical Man in Black within the year. On December 22nd of 1967, Connie and Keith were visited by a person who Keel identified as a man in black type. This man apparently talked with them for about two hours, but Connie was unable to remember anything about the conversation, just the man arriving and then leaving. Keel continues. For the past year, there have been repeated poltergeist manifestations in her home. Strange noises, objects that have been in one place for years suddenly falling off of shelves, etc., she has also been receiving many odd phone calls. Later, he writes of Connie. Like everyone in New Haven, she has seen a number of UFOs in recent months. So in Connie's case, as well as others, the Mothman sighting is just one of a number of paranormal experiences that Keel believes are linked. The book, The Mothman Prophecies, is full of Keel's drawing connections between different paranormal occurrences and, at least in one instance, an event that was tragically real. After the break. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. 
Why do some paranormal stories have staying power while others fade from public consciousness? Sometimes, events are just events until someone spins them into a narrative. For the Mothman events, there was John Keel, his book, The Mothman Prophecies, and the movie that was made from the book, starring Richard Gere. Last few months, people have been coming up to me and reporting strange things. Weird lights, strange phone calls. Who is this? What do you do when someone comes into your office and tells you they saw this in their backyard? The Mothman Prophecies, published in 1975, doesn't read like most books on the paranormal. In fact, its style is more along the lines of crime noir, or maybe Philip K. Dick. Again, host of The Saucer Life, Aaron Gullius. It's a fun book to read. It's very engaging. It's written in this first-person, investigative, journalistic feel. He's a reporter. He's checking out the story. He's got his reporting contacts there in Athens, Ohio, with, with Mary Heyer and other people on the scene. And it's the story of trying to uncover what's going on at the heart of these sightings that these young people and others have had of this flying creature with the giant red eyes that gets dubbed the Mothman. In doing this, Keel widens the scope, both geographically and, as we heard earlier in the case of Connie Carpenter, to include other paranormal and mysterious phenomena. It's a sort of weird, sprawling story that's hard to describe because it goes off on these little tangents. You've got the Mothman stuff, but then you've got Keel talking about these men in black encounters that other people, not people in, in West Virginia have had, but these other people various places have had, and how it relates to similar encounters with strange men telling Mary Heyer to stop looking into this story or to telling witnesses to stop talking about this. So Keel is telling the story of what happened in West Virginia, but tying in specific things that are happening in West Virginia to the wider world of UFOs and the paranormal. He's telling the story that he's trying to tell about the certain time and place, but giving it a lot of context in the wider UFO scene. This, said Times, leads the reader far from West Virginia. For instance, there's a great scene of a man in black having difficulty figuring out how to eat at the legendary New York City club Max's Kansas City. This strange man is described as wearing an ill-fitting suit and having bulging eyes, what Keel calls thyroid eyes. He beckons the waitress over with long, tapering fingers. She offers him a menu that he looks at helplessly and then merely says, food. The waitress thinks that perhaps he can't read and suggests a steak, which she then brings to his table. She bought him a steak with all the trimmings. He stared at it for a long moment and then picked up his knife and fork, glancing around at the other diners. It was obvious he did not know how to handle the implements. The waitress watched him as he fumbled helplessly. Finally, she showed him how to cut the steak and spear it with the fork. He sawed away at the meat. Clearly, he really was hungry. Where are you from? She asked gently. Not from here. Where? Another world. Boy, another put-on artist, she thought to herself. But one of the novel's great conceits relates to an all-too-real tragedy 
that also marks the end of the Mothman sightings. He crafts a narrative story that culminates in this deadly bridge collapse right before Christmas in West Virginia, between West Virginia and Ohio. And he links, and and there's some debate about whether or not this was a factually correct thing to do. He links the Mothman with the bridge collapse, maybe not explicitly, but there's this implicit notion that the Mothman was a, a warning, the Mothman was a harbinger, and he's able to, like I said, craft this this narrative. This is John Keel from his Fort Fest lecture. In the Christmas season of 1967, in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, there was a bridge called the Silver Bridge that crossed the Ohio River. And on December 15, 1967, that bridge collapsed and it was loaded down with cars, people who had been Christmas shopping. For 40 years, the Silver Bridge spanned the Ohio River, linking Point Pleasant, West Virginia, with Canaga, Ohio, linking those two points until 5.02 yesterday afternoon. The Silver Bridge, so-called because of the aluminum paint covering it, was packed with rush hour traffic and holiday shoppers all sitting and waiting on a red light. Then there was a loud cracking sound and one of the towers began to violently twist. Within minutes, three spans collapsed into the 43 degree river. At least 57 automobiles and trucks were spilled into the icy waters of the Ohio. Eyewitnesses said the bridge seemed to shudder and then drop into the water. Some vehicles, those in the center of the span, fell 80 feet. The massive steel superstructure crashed down onto the automobiles. Passengers were trapped in the twisted wreckage. I think that Harbinger connection is probably the weakest thing he does in the book. It's always has struck me as more of a narrative device that he thought would be good than anything else. Because, you know, there's the Mothman doesn't talk, you know, so we don't have any indication from the Mothman that there's this thing coming. People have a sense of foreboding, but they're frightened by the Mothman things and all the other things that are going on at the time. I think the link is tenuous. There have been other alleged Mothman sightings since then in various places, and people have tried to link them to various disasters, and it always seems like a bit of a stretch. To me... It seems like Keel is taking advantage of the proximity of the Mothman flap with the bridge collapse and superimposing some kind of connection. It's not surprising that people who saw the Mothman would feel ill at ease. That would seem more connected to the sighting itself than the perception of foreboding. But, of course, the connection does make for a more compelling story. So, what was the Mothman? The fairly obvious idea that it could be a large bird was put forward early on. Here, at the Saucer News meeting, Keel makes the case that the bird hypothesis can't be right. The Mothman has pursued automobiles on a a number of occasions and has reached speeds up to 100 miles an hour, scaring the daylights out of the drivers. There is only one bird that can go anywhere near that fast. It's a certain eagle and it can uh, reach 70 or 80 miles in a steep dive straight down if it's diving at some prey on the ground. But we don't know of any bird that could do this. And if this thing is a bird, it's the uh, weirdest bird. When Mothman first appeared, uh, a number of distinguished scientists, hundreds of miles away, decided that it was the Sandhill Crane, 
So I got some pictures of a sandhill crane, which is a large bird, stands about this high, has a very long neck. I took this picture around to all the witnesses of Mothman and showed it to them, and they said it wasn't a bird. It wasn't a sandhill crane. Despite Keel's objection, the sandhill crane has continued to be a popular explanation for the Mothman. But a new theory has been proposed by a researcher who agrees that a large bird is likely responsible for the sightings, but not the sandhill crane. His story begins with an invitation from a friend. One day he said, hey, let's go to Point Pleasant and check out the Mothman Museum. I said, sure, let's go. While we were there, we decided both of us independently had been to the Mothman Museum, but neither of us had been to the TNT area. I said, why don't, why don't we venture out there? And he said, sure. My name's Daniel Reed. I've done a lot of things in my life. I've been interested in the strange and the outre and the paranormal for most of my life. I've taught on the graduate and undergraduate level, psychology, sociology, different types of things. So we drove out. We hoped that we were headed in the right spot. I had directions pulled up on my cell. We pulled in and we got out and started walking. Well, the minute that we got there, I looked up and I saw a blue heron that was up in a tree and the blue heron sort of took off and flew. Great blue herons can be quite big, up to four and a half feet tall with a wingspan of nearly seven feet. As Reed and his friend explored the igloos at the TNT area, he thought about the Sandhill Crane explanation. And so I thought, huh, I wonder how prevalent a Sandhill Crane is in this area. And so that led to the research. It turns out that while not unheard of, Sandhill Cranes are not common in this area. Great Blue Herons, on the other hand, are. The Sandhill Crane and the Great Blue Heron have similar physical attributes that make them plausible explanations for the Mothman sightings. Remember, the first sighting occurred at night in the creepy TNT area. So a panicked misidentification was not surprising. After that story came out, people were conditioned to interpret any large flying thing as the Mothman. But what about the shiny red eyes that witnesses mentioned? A different explanation may account for these encounters. Joe Nickel has determined, and, and I agree, that barred owls are probably some of the cases. But I think those are where eye shine is seen. So Joe Nickel put forth that in cases where eye shine, that it was most likely people were seeing barred owls. Nickel had published an article in the Skeptical Inquirer right as the Mothman Prophecies movie was being released, identifying the Mothman as a barn owl. He later corrected himself, asserting that it was a barred owl that was responsible for the sightings that referenced red, reflective eyes. I once did a Mothman and rushed to print because there was a movie coming out and I made a big mistake and I identified it as the barn owl again and then nobody caught anything. But I realized later with further research that I was wrong. It wasn't a barn owl, it was a barred owl. And I knew for sure because it had uh, crimson eye shine. And that just tells you it's a barred owl for sure. I even had a wildlife expert take me out one evening. My wife and I wore moccasins and went with him out into the wilderness. And he knew right where there was a big, tall, tall tree with barred owls. 
and I got to shine a spotlight up and see those like bicycle reflectors. Turned out on further research where Mothman was first seen was a bird sanctuary, wildlife sanctuary, with known barred owls right there. And then in January, somebody shot a large owl down there. And so they decided, oh, we've solved the mystery. We, we, it's an owl. And the owl, of course, stood about this high. It was a pretty big owl. But again, uh, the witnesses went around and looked at the owl and they said, no, that's not the Mothman. The Mothman is from six to seven feet tall. He has two large red eyes, two inches in diameter. Keel ignores the idea that the barred owl and the crane or heron are responsible for different sightings or different parts of the same sighting. Again, people were primed to see the Mothman. Any eerie encounter would be interpreted through that lens. Keel maintained that zoological explanations for the Mothman were inadequate. In fact, he questioned whether the Mothman was actually flying in the way a bird, or I guess a moth, would. Now, all of the witnesses say the same thing. He has a wing spread of 10 feet. And here's another little irony. An object this size needs very large wings to support it. A human being, you or I, if we were going to uh, make a glider that we could strap on ourselves and fly with, that we would need a wingspan of about 35 feet. Now, Mothman is bigger than we are, and he's got a 10-foot wingspan, and he flies anyway, like the bumblebee. Some of the witnesses down there now say that they have heard the sound of some kind of motor, humming sound, as the object passes over their head. So possibly this thing is propelled by something. Now Keel is speculating that the Mothman might be wearing a kind of jetpack and not using his wings at all. The wings do not move when it's in flight. When this creature is standing on the ground, his wings are folded back. And then when he takes off, the wings spread. As I said last night, no one has seen any arms on this thing. The wings spread, the thing takes off straight up. Now most large birds need a running start. And this thing doesn't do that. It just goes straight up in the air and then goes straight across and, and pursues whatever it's pursuing, people or automobile or flying to its flying saucer to go away. Here, Keel has directly connected the Mothman to the UFO sightings. Again, Daniel Reed. I think that there was a lot of, um, well, I don't want to say hysteria, but there was a lot of imaginative people that were involved in looking for it and so on and so forth. I think that a lot of the, the hype that came of this was a lot of imagination on a lot of different people's parts. And the stories conflated. Many went into one and it, it ended up being what we have now. It's spawned numerous documentaries. And you can say, well, the Mothman story was out there before Keel wrote it. It was in the late 60s. Keel's book came out in the mid-70s. So why does Keel get the credit for it? Because he's the one who put the story out there and packaged it in such a way that it grabbed the imagination. But don't forget, there's lots and lots of other equally baffling mysteries, UFO flaps and monster outbreaks that haven't had that sort of storytelling input, you know, that have been forgotten about, you know, that are there in the archives somewhere, you know, they were reported in a local newspaper or something. Folklorist and journalist David Clark. 
We heard from him last season about his research into the Rendlesham Forest encounters. He needs someone like a proselytizer, like a John Fuller with Betty and Barney Hill, and like John Keel with the Mothman, and like Arthur Shuttlewood for the Warminster Mystery in England in the 1960s to transform that into a legend. If you don't have that, then these stories fade away or become obscure mysteries that, you know, turn up some in, in a book somewhere a few lines. So I think it's important to have that storytelling element. And effectively, all the best stories live, live on because they are good stories. It's something inside us that we react emotionally to those stories. That's why the legend of King Arthur has lived on and the legend of Robin Hood. Whereas, you know, Robin Hood was this medieval outlaw, but there's tons of other medieval outlaws who peoples have been long forgotten about. If I mention one of their names, you'd say, who? John Keel took the events of 1966 and 1967 around Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and turned them into a story whose tentacles spread from the Mothman sightings to other parts of this country and other phenomena occurring around where the Mothman was seen. In this broadening of the tale, we can see signs of Keel's beliefs about paranormal phenomena. Beliefs that can be seen behind the work being carried out by government-funded UFO investigators today. So what did John Keel really believe? Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Rima El Kayali, Jesse Funk, and Noemi Griffin, with executive producers Alexander Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey, and supervising producer Josh Thane, with voice acting by Ben Bolin and Noemi Griffin. Learn more about the show at grimandmild.com slash strangearrivals, and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.